Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Sean Smith, who's a professor of computational nanomaterials, science and technology at the Australian National University and director of Australia's National Supercomputing Facility, NCI Australia. He has extensive theoretical and computational research experience in chemistry, nanomaterials, and nanobioscience and technology. Prior to returning to Australia, he directed the US Department of Energy funded center for nano-phase material sciences at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Sean has published over 260 refereed journal papers with more than 15,000 citations. Welcome, Sean. Hello, Gil. Uh, I want to start with your recent essay uh, in the special issue of the Journal of Advanced Theory and Simulations entitled Computational Material Science, Discovering and Accelerating Future Technologies uh, in which you say moving the boundaries of knowledge, scientific research, and technologies forward through the field of computational material science requires a combination of fundamental understanding of materials properties and appreciation of the limitations with our current approaches and the ability to embrace new and emerging technologies. I have, uh, I have long felt, Sean, that research sort of lagged in material sciences um, we have been waiting for long, I think, for room temperature superconductivity, efficient photocatalytic materials, and others. Uh, so, so what do you mean by computational material science? So computational material science skill um, can, can operate on, on different levels of, of, um, of detail, shall we say. My own field coming out of theoretical chemistry and material science uh, involves essentially bottom-up calculations from first principles, quantum mechanics, yeah, um, and uh, and uh, molecular dynamics approaches. And so we look at fundamental materials properties on, on an atomic scale, yeah. uh, and then we infer um, from we, we look for basically effective descriptors which are, are indicative for certain types of material behavior, 
And when we find them, we will pass that information to our experimental colleagues and uh, suggest that they might try heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- there's another top-down approach that comes traditionally out of engineering, uh, which works on a, on macro scale and then and then tries to drive down using sort of more traditional finite element approaches. Yeah. Um, equal, equally sophisticated, but coming at it from a different angle. And I think that the the um, you know, there used to be an enormous gap between these two different top-down and bottom-up approaches. And, and in fact, it's paralleled experimentally as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's closing, uh, and it's closing because of accumulated knowledge that's come out of out of out of the research sector. Um, it's closing because of technological capabilities. Yeah, uh, I certainly saw that experimentally. I saw that when I was um, running the Centre at Oak Ridge because they were pushing the boundaries of of atomic scale approaches moving up towards um, micron scale and then and then uh, pushing down with the other uh, more macro scale experimental approaches. And I've seen the same parallels going in terms of the ability of, of modeling to, to connect these bottom up and top down approaches. Yeah, so when you say atomic scales, um, so, um, you, you know, this is a bit like uh, you have some kind of a target uh, set of properties that you're pursuing and then you're looking looking for this uh, at the atomic scale. How how exactly does it work? So if I if I take an example out of um, catalysis, where my group's been very active in in recent years, yeah, uh, you, there's there's a lot of things you can calculate at the atomic scale. Um, you can calculate a band gap for a material. Mm-hmm. Um, you can calculate. Uh, a chemical barrier for a particular reaction, which is thought to be a key step uh, in, a, in, a, in a process. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, some of these quantities it's found are interesting, but not directly correlated to uh, the actual uh, catalytic function you're trying to, trying to develop. Um, mm-hmm. And others are, are, are found to be quite sensitive. And so we look, when we talk about descriptors, we're really looking for, Key, key properties which seem to be quite sensitive in terms of the uh, of the um, process you're trying to achieve yeah um, and and that has its own parallel very obviously in, in machine learning um, and AI yeah. which, which are you know automated ways of finding these descriptor uh, characteristics that are that are good signatures and so once you've identified, these types of characteristics, then you can go screening, um, doing calculations on many different potential materials and and look at those properties. uh, And that gives you indicators as as to where you should push experimental work. Experiments are very very expensive. um, And because the computer is getting more efficient, then we can help um, guide the process. So, so, so you, you have a, um, you have an application in mind, let's say some kind of a catalyst, and there are some uh, known catalysts out there. I'm just making the statement, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean. Uh, so there are some known catalysts. They have some properties that you're already aware of. And those are sort of the initial conditions that you have and that, and that you're using it uh, to, to try to find better and better materials? Is that, the, is that a good way to think about it or no? I think that's a pretty decent way to think about it, Gil. Um, yes. And by, um, by using the theoretical calculations, we can often get a somewhat deeper understanding of what's driving 
yeah. the efficiency. Um, and that gives us refined and sometimes somewhat better um, uh, descriptors to go after to try and chase. Okay. And so that's where the machine learning uh, comes in as well. So again, you have some historical observations. And as you run experiments at the atomic scale, uh, you have some, uh, some observations there. And uh, perhaps machine learning on historical data might give you an indication or maybe the probability that, that the new material or new properties could be useful in that direction. I think so, and and the, the the thing is that the machine learning algorithms are, uh, shall we say, as, scient as scientists, we tend to be a little bit tracked based on our past experience. Our thinking mode is kind of a little bit um, shaped in that way, whereas the machine comes at it without bias yeah. um, and just works on the data that's available to it. Uh, and so there are advantages to that approach um, because it's an unbiased approach. Right. As long as the data set it's working on is unbiased, by the way, um, and that's an, an underlying issue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in life sciences, for example, um, high throughput screening, you know, those types of approaches when you have a target, you have a you know, set of chemicals you're attempting. And, and sometimes um, a fully automated process where the machine is leading uh, further experiments based on uh, based on data generated appears to me more, more efficient. Um, I would imagine this is an analogous situation here, right? Yes, yes, that's, that's correct. And so, so um, you know, one of the areas that you have done a lot of work in uh, is, is uh, catalysis um, and, and hydrogen production uh, and mm. using hydrogen as, uh, as an energy uh, medium as well as a storage of energy medium. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so we're working on, um, we're working on basically trying to find uh, cheap and abundant materials which um, can be made active catalytically. Uh, for hydrogen production. Yeah. And and the overall scenario on that is that uh, we would like to be able to use abundant sunlight uh, to generate um, electricity uh, through through um, um, uh, photovoltaics, obviously. And and the issue then is if you want to do this on, on a scale that would lead to large-scale exports because Australia has abundant um, abundant sunlight, renewable energy sources, but how are you going to store um, amounts of electricity, amounts of energy yeah. uh, on the scale of coal-fired power stations? Um, is this is way this is way way beyond what you could typically go buy a Tesla battery to store. Right. Um, and we 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 have some of the biggest batteries in the world down under here, but they don't go close to what you would need to do if you seriously wanted to replace coal-fired power stations and actually turn it into an energy export uh, process. And so, so hydrogen is one of the solutions to this because when you make hydrogen by splitting water, you use that electrical energy that you've harvested from the sunlight yeah. um, and you use it to produce hydrogen as a fuel. And it's um, once you've made it, you can make it in any amount you want. The storage uh, uh, technologies are all very well established. Mm. 
Um, and so it becomes an enormous energy reservoir, much like coal is um, today, right? Hydrogen basically replaces it as an enormous energy reservoir. And then uh, you can export it, you can use it domestically, uh, you can use it as a fuel, you can burn it the same way you would natural gas and it's a clean burning fuel, there's no carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. um, or you can use it to turn back into electricity where you need it using fuel cells. Yeah. So it's kind of a, almost a turnkey solution, um, which is, is growing in the perception of, of just how we could scale this out. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say make hydrogen from water, are we talking about the typical electrolysis or something different? Yeah. No, that's exactly what it is. So, okay. So you are using electricity uh, electrolysis to, to create hydrogen, uh, but hydrogen uh, you can you can store. And so I would imagine uh, then you're talking about using solar uh, energy production and then using that energy and basically converting that into a storage mechanism, which is hydrogen. That's exactly right, Gil, yes. And, and so um, this is different from, I remember, you know, sort of the fifth grade experiments where, um, you know, we, we may try to make uh, hydrogen from water by just passing electricity through it. But that is an expensive, uh, expensive uh, way to make hydrogen, right? Um, clearly, the the materials of the electrodes have a lot of uh, impact on on efficiency of that process. So this is another area that you have done a lot of uh, lot of work in. Mm, that's right. So the the um, materials that traditionally are used for that electrolysis process um, are precious metals like platinum. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's simply an expensive material. And so, yes, you can do it at at moderate scale. But there again, uh, if you're thinking about um, scaling this up to enormous scale, it just becomes an expensive bottleneck. And so, a lot of the research that's being done, both theoretical and experimental, uh, is attempting to find cheap and abundant materials which can perform at a similar level to platinum. Uh, and thereby will eliminate that particular bottleneck in the technology. Okay, and so um, one of the things that 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 you work with it's actually carbon carbon nanostructures. Is that? That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. You want to talk a bit about that? So, and I know that you you have mm -hmm. a you have a commercial company around that as well. Uh, yeah. Yes, we do. We do. So, in, in essence, we. Um, we, we kind of came at this from left field uh, from a different direction to the, uh, the sort of mainstream approaches uh, because we came at it from a theoretical perspective uh, and came up with an interesting idea about how you could potentially activate uh, carbon materials to be effective for this electrolysis process, whereas usually they're not really not very good. Yeah. Um, and, and it shows a lot of promise. So we have... Um, We've been proving up that technology uh, at lab scale to see just how far you can push it, how well you can control it. Uh, but it's a novel and very interesting approach to using a, a, an abundantly cheap um, and available material carbon to to replace platinum, essentially. Yeah. So the the savings there would be um, would be the the electrodes, the materials of the electrodes themselves, platinum to carbon. But you still you still need the electricity, right? So the idea here, uh, again, if you have some kind of a solar cell uh, power um, power production somewhere, 
you could then attach to that this process that ultimately produces hydrogen and and, and the storage of hydrogen here uh, Sean you know in at scale how is how is the hydrogen stored in this case uh, so yes you've you've um, uh, hit the nail on the head Gil that that we definitely want to make hydrogen from from sunlight from renewable energy sources um, that's really important because it it means you don't have carbon emissions in doing so I mean the current high the current high volume way to make hydrogen is from uh, uh, from natural gas essentially um, yeah. by reforming and that emits co2 so it's not a terribly good way to do it so we're looking at renewable energy, sunlight to electricity, which then makes your hydrogen from the water. Uh, and then the storage methodology, um, it varies depending on what your application is. The, the, the simplest way is to, is, to, is to put it in a gas tank uh, yeah. and um, high-pressure high tank technology is, is well-established and actually has taken great advances um, uh, over the last decade or, or two. Um, there are, you can liquefy it. Um, and and in Australia, we're, they're looking at um, liquefying hydrogen in order to ship it out to Japan uh, at large scale as an export process. Um, there are other ways you can do it. Uh, you can look for a solid absorbent material, and and um, this has been a bit of a holy grail since since way back in the mid two thousands decade, when there was a big push into hydrogen storage materials, and people were looking for materials which could absorb. Uh, um, perhaps up to up to seven weight percent of hydrogen, and then release it um, uh, at at sort of ambient pressures and temperatures when needed. Yeah, that's a tough target to achieve. In fact, and I don't think we've never really found a an ideal solution to that. But but there's still a lot of active work going on. Uh, another interesting technology that um, is being developed at CSIRO, which is the sort of a, the national laboratory, if you will, uh, down under here in Australia. Yeah. They're looking at ammonia. Uh, they're looking at ammonia as a vector for hydrogen. Um, so that uh, I think they've got a, they've got a, a catalytic process which allows you to um, turn the to turn the hydrogen into ammonia effectively. And ammonia is naturally a liquid. So then you don't have to worry about you know low temperatures liquefaction of hydrogen. Ammonia is liquid at room temperature. Right. Uh, and and again, transport methods for ammonia are, are pretty well established. So there's a few different ways you can go at this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, uh, Sean, but if I... Uh, so the the production of electricity is through some kind of solar-based uh, production. Uh, and so the advantages here in terms of hydrogen is both storage at scale and transportability of, of that source. Uh, and if you go to liquefying uh, hydrogen and other transformation, then there's additional energy used there, right? And then transportation to, for example, Japan or something. So if you were to do that, that entire process, what would be sort of the total cost per energy unit of energy used uh, ultimately? Um, I don't. I don't have a a figure. A quantitative figure for that. It's being, um, it's being, uh, the, the kind of the, the the cost and techno-economic analysis is being done yeah. in some significant detail because there are pilot studies uh, which are which are spinning up at the moment. But I think at the end of the day, 
it's the, the absolute cost. Well, yeah, it matters. Um, but whether it's a viable, uh, whether it's a viable export industry um, at the end of the day depends on how the cost of that um, stacks up against the attractiveness of being able to get um, hydrogen for the, for, for the large Japanese and Asian industries. Um, yeah. And, and they don't have the same land space. They don't have the same, uh, they don't have the available land space to do really large scale generation themselves and often not the sun, not the, not the climate to match either. Right. Uh, and so, and yet they're committed to transforming their economies to become uh, carbon emission free. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a question of relative cost. Mm. How else are you going to get rid of them basically? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's almost uh, like you have no other option. <laughs> um, almost but, is. Yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah, you know, uh, if the energy were to be used locally, then I don't know what the efficiencies are for something like pump storage. Uh, but if you need to transport it, I would Im imagine just the conventional batteries like lithium ion or something like that, that would be just too expensive, I would imagine, right? At, at scale, there's a, yeah. there's a tipping point with scale. And so typically for... Um, you know, for household projects, for for smaller scale things, or the or for example, um, okay, let me give you another example for uh, that relates to my, the supercomputing center. Um, yeah. We we use batteries to back up our storage, okay, and and the batteries will will store enough energy to keep the keep our storage active, and and so if the power goes out, the batteries kick in, um, and they'll they'll keep the storage. Uh, active for long enough so that we can gracefully shut it down and you know, on the order of 10, 15, 20 minutes or so, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and so at that sort of scale, batteries are great. You know, they work well, they're, they're efficient. Um, even for uh, Adelaide has this, has what was the world's largest uh, lithium ion battery uh, from Tesla. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, they they use it for intermittent power dropouts to stabilize the, the grid, mm. uh, but it, it it can't run for a long time, and so it gets to a point where, at a certain scale, um, hydrogen takes over as being a more advantageous way to do it. Right, right, right. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, I know that there are some developments, you know, in the photocatalytic semiconductors, right? That does not require. Uh, sort of running electricity uh, through water and then, you know, producing electricity using solar and then running it through, through water. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, so where are we on, on that, that dimension, the photocatalytic dimension? Yeah, look, it's, it's, again, it's one of these holy grail things. Yeah. Um, if I had a direct way to transform the sunlight and I shine it onto, you know, my catalyst, which is floating around in a slurry and water, Right. And then off bubbles the hydrogen. You know that's 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 um, it's very appealing. Uh, and and but it still essentially is, I would say, in the research domain. Um, and and so it becomes a question: if there's a if there's an imperative to advance this technology, uh, then you're going to do it with components which are reasonably well established. And photovoltaics mm -hmm. are are now a very well established technology, and the cost scale's gone down. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, we would use the photovoltaics to get the electricity, and then we would do the electrolysis. Right. Um, 
but 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 the 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 direct route which uses these uh, photocatalysts is very appealing if you can make it work, but still in research domain, I would say. Yeah, so uh, in the U.S., I haven't looked at the numbers recently, uh, Sean. The, the photovoltaic solar cells still require, uh, I believe, subsidies for them to, to make them viable. Is that the case in Australia? Um, I mean, the production of we don't, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't. We don't have, at least to my knowledge, and I, you know, I'm... I, not, I'm not a, a direct specialist in the photovoltaic industry here down under. Yeah. But my knowledge, the government is not pushing large-scale subsidies. Um, well, what we're seeing here is that uh, solar energy production is just taking off, and it's it's um it's not it's not something that, it's not something now that is actually driven by by government subsidies. Um, it's just taking off in yeah. enormous volumes. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the goal has always been that once you get to certain scale, it, it becomes, uh, you know, sort of a self-sustaining. So it sounds like yeah. Australia has already gotten there. I don't know if you followed this. Um, you know, Bill Gates, I believe, uh, had invested in uh, some sort of concentrating solar uh, technology, which, uh, which appears to be a lot more efficient. Uh, for for certain you know certain applications, uh, I mm. wonder you, you know if you if you studied that the concentrating solar aspects of it. No, no, Gil, I have studied it, and I'm probably about as aware of it as 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 you are. Uh, in a, in a, uh, my understanding of it is relatively superficial, but I I do know that you know if you can use mirrors to concentrate solar energy, and then if you've got a material which can absorb that high intensity solar energy and store it in one way or another, yeah. um, most likely as some sort of heat storage, uh, then in certain cases that can be, that can be competitive. Yeah, and uh, you know, the, 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 the numbers I've seen is obviously it, it has applications only in specific areas because you need to have mm. You know, either you have to you have to drive a turbine, you know, to, to create the electricity, uh, or you could use it in some sort of manufacturing context where you are using you know some uh, fossil fuel or electricity to to melt things, you know, things like that. But uh, it, it requires obviously specific applications. Yeah. So mm. the, the product that you have, uh, Sean, is is that that is an industrial scale product right that that you're pursuing that the company what, what's the company called uh, caltech caltech yeah um yes it, it's um caltech if, if if the technology works then it will scale out to an industrial scale very directly because the material is so cheap and so available um but we're still proving it up uh, out of the lab scale to make sure that it's efficient uh, and it's controllable, uh, and we know how to engineer it for for scaling into into industrial settings. So, so our technology is still is still um, pre pre industrial scale, uh, and we're we're basically proving it up. Do you do you expect some sort of domestic application? I know that hydrogen is not easy to handle, but uh, do you do you perceive any sort of uh, small scale domestic 
application, residential, I should say, the, application. Yeah, so the, that's right. These these experiments are these um sort of pilot studies are developing uh, here in Australia, I suppose, in the states too. I don't know, but. Um, we are looking at it because, um, and when I say we, I don't mean Celtic in that context. I mean the Australian sort of uh, sector. Yeah. Uh, they're looking at pilot studies because the first step in this is that you can bleed hydrogen into a natural gas network mm. uh, up to, I think it's it's figured they can bring it up to about 20% um, or, or close to that anyway. Mm. Uh, and it still burns like natural gas, and yet it's a certain percentage of hydrogen. Right. Uh, and so in the, in the first uh, pilot studies, they're looking at um, producing hydrogen from solar and then bleeding it into the natural gas network um, mm. to get a handle on, on the technology basically first. Yeah. And, but it doesn't then require that they completely change the gas network. Um, if they were to flip to 100% hydrogen going through the gas infrastructure, then you've got to change your, you've got to change your burners basically. And, and, and do some other changes. And so the first step is to actually bleed it into the natural gas network. Now, if you, if you then think about, and that's at suburban scale, right? Yeah. Um, if, if, if you think about uh, a household, ordinarily, you would, um, you'd, you'd have a, you know, a, a, a Tesla battery on the side of the wall, basically, to store a certain amount of energy. Yeah. Uh, and that, at, that, at a household scale, that, that works pretty well. Um, and so the question is, well, normally we think hydrogen takes over as being more effective at large scale. Would it have a utilization at a household scale? This actually, it, it might if you can eliminate certain parts of the process. So if you've got your solar panels on the roof, you turn that into electricity, you turn that into hydrogen, you take a hit right there. Mm. And then when you want to turn the hydrogen back into electricity again to use it, you take another hit. Right. Um, and so if you can find a way to eliminate some parts of that, then it may become competitive at household scale. So, for example, yeah. what if I make the hydrogen um, and then I just bleed it back out into the gas network and I get a, and I get a, a discount on my gas bill um, because I've, I've produced hydrogen and fed it into the network. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we already do this for, for electricity. Uh, you might be able to do it for hydrogen as well. That eliminates one part of the. Uh, one part of the cost factor. So there might be ways that it becomes relevant at household scale. Yeah, but if if, um, if you have solar panels on the roof and you are on the grid, uh, I would imagine the most efficient way to provide that excess energy back would be through electricity, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you convert back into hydrogen, as you say, you, you yeah. take a hit there, right? Yeah, no, I know what you mean, Gil. However, yeah. Um, this then again comes back to the capacity of the grid to um, right, right. take that electricity. Right. And 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 uh, for example, here in Canberra, um, the the electricity um, uh, suppliers are at a point where they're actually trying to <laughs> they're trying to tell new suburbs not to build heaps and heaps of solar mm. because what happens is in the middle of the day you get a flood of electricity pushing back onto the grid and they don't know how to deal with it. It comes back to storage. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there are issues with that too. In fact. Yeah. So, so I mean, if you are practicing dynamic pricing of some sort, then you know you will be driving down prices to probably close to zero. Uh, they go negative. That's yeah, right. or to negative because there is there is no way to store it. So the beauty of hydrogen there 
it's really its ability to store energy and exactly. and, and release it exactly. as necessary about your talking mm-hmm. shawn i was also thinking if you were to put that into the natural gas grid uh what is the mm. mechanics of this thing burning i would so the natural gas produces co2 hydrogen when it burns produces water right mm, that's right so so how does it how does it work in the you know in the in the kind of a typical burner so i i think and look i i i'm i'm not an engineer in that sense skill yeah. so i i can't make authoritative um observations on it but my my understanding is that up to the order of maybe 15 to 20% of hydrogen um you can actually burn burn it through the traditional um gas top elements or whatever uh and and it works fine it doesn't produce any any uh any um any real difficulties okay um however if you're going to go above that you are going to need to redesign your burner and and so you'll need to swap out the swap out the elements and so on right right and so i should imagine that yeah. they have to have some way surely of um of absorbing excess water i mean i you mm-hmm. you might end up with, with with you know a lot of vapor around the house and getting mold on the walls or something <laughs> there's got to be something you got to do right yeah yeah uh you know the 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 interesting thing about this is that uh you know conceivably you know if you look forward you say we want to get out of all fossil fuels uh but there is an infrastructure already in place for natural gas and mm. you you know we could that that is stranded investment so we could use exactly. the same infrastructure uh but this time it, it's going to take hydrogen so essentially you eliminate yeah. all greenhouse uh gas issues uh but still use the infrastructure that's already in place that that's i mean that's the that's the game and so far as the um utilities companies are concerned they've got billions of dollars of investment in the gas network and if they can repurpose that relatively seamlessly to hydrogen without having to build a new network that's a big win it's um, a big win yeah and, and just getting back to our earlier point around the 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 negative pricing during the daytime when all the electricity is coming back out of the f- rooftop solar panels yeah uh the electricity suppliers are are looking again uh at hydrogen as a way to stabilize the grid so when they have all the electricity flooding onto the grid mm. um they actually could use that to make hydrogen to store it uh and so it's it's a it's a stabilizing mechanism in that sense as far as they're concerned right right and and uh, you mentioned ammonia so what's the what's the mechanism there I actually don't know. I just know that the CSIRO have got IP which they're working on. Okay. Um which is I think a catalytic process for for going to ammonia instead of of hydrogen. Um and and that's about as much as I know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean the you know if you look at a country like Australia, southwestern part of the US, uh perhaps India, the these are places where there is abundant solar uh energy uh and it hasn't really been utilized in some efficient fashion um and i think the push has always been solar panels which in the us as far as i know is still not sufficiently viable uh it requires a, a subsidy uh but uh perhaps you know the issue there is just like you say 
uh, it produces excess energy uh, at some point, but it doesn't uh, at other points. And so the pricing that you can command on that infrastructure is highly variable. And that goes mm. to the economic, economic equation. So if you have a modality that allows storage, that whole equation changes quite dramatically. I think that's a, that's a, a good comment, Gil. Yes. Yeah. So you, you are um, working I mean, on. Sorry. So so sorry. Very quickly, Sean. So you you're also working. So based on what you said, it could be district storage, or the electricity company itself saying we are going to get excess power in these hours of the day. We can hmm. we can efficiently store it right at a central location as well. That's right. That's correct. Yes. Sorry, I, I uh, you you were saying something. I interrupted you. Uh, no, I just I noticed recently that um, Saudi Arabia apparently is making a big push for um, for solar and renewable energy. Uh, you know, it's part of their vision for ultimately transitioning out of fossil fuels. Yeah, um, I mean, I I don't know you know exactly what path we are on, but I think once the the population start to see the real effects of a temperature rise uh, really affecting yeah. their lives. Um, London today, I think, is at you know, 90 degrees or something like that. It's, uh, it's hotter than uh, southeastern part of the US <laughs> today. Yeah. Uh, so I think once mm. uh, the larger population start to see the effects, I think it's going to come back to the policymakers to, to move on it a lot faster than they have been. Yeah, tell me about it, Gil. You know what we went through last summer down under here in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was just uh, uh, it was appalling, and the whole country was just aghast um, at the the bushfire season we had. All um, right, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. It, it it uh it was a groundswell and and changed a lot of political thinking and motivations down here. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, uh, Sean, I know that you're working on a lot of this research ideas, but also on the practical side of applying it. If you look forward, say, five years, uh, where do you see uh, we would make the, the biggest, uh, biggest leaps, both in terms of research as well as applications? Well, I, I think, Gil, we are going to find um, the, one, of, one of the enormous... Uh, objectives which we're progressing towards is is basically this transition out of fossil fuels and into renewable energy which requires the storage equation to be solved yeah uh, we will find abundant catalysts to do this uh, which will which will make that that entire um, that entire chain it'll make it economically viable and scalable um, and for Australia it's going to turn into an enormous energy export market, which ultimately will, will replace Australia exporting coal, um, which is really important. Hmm. So that's a big thing. Um, likewise, we're you know we're dealing with um, demands in the biotech sector, which uh, are accelerating too. With the obvious example we deal with currently globally, the COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and and the, the methods by which we're accelerating. Our ability to combat these things are are advancing dramatically, um, and and that is in no small part underpinned by computer modelling. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the the advances in in computational capacity and our ability to move ahead of experiments and find avenues that they can follow 
uh, is completely changing the way in which research gets done and the way these advances are, are made. Uh, and I think that is a game changer as well uh, going forwards. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting times, um, you know, material sciences, the way that you are doing some of this, uh, let's call it discoveries, um, you know, kind of bottom up discoveries at the atomic scale uh, could have a huge impact, right? Material sciences, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I would imagine has been largely a top down process, uh, looking for new materials and then looking for a property but now you could actually seek the property or predict the property and, and have designs that sort of bottom up, right? Yes, uh, and, and this conception, um, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's been around for some time. The, mater the whole materials genome uh, initiative out of the, out of the US was, was based on this precept. Yeah. Um, and it's a great idea, but it's not easy. Uh, and so, but it's accelerating, and I think we are starting to see um, we're starting to see that kind of process uh, really kick goals now. Even after you know, after a decade, really of spinning it up. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so this has been great, Sean. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me, and uh, good luck with. Uh, well, thanks, Bill. I've, I've really enjoyed it too. Yeah, it's good, good talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. All right. Okay. Thanks, then. Bye, bye.